The Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we are offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership to the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership at the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to seeing you at the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings. I'm Dr. Robert Lee Kilpatrick, the chair of the Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And I'm delighted to welcome you to what promises to be a fascinating program today focused on a topic of interest to all of us, that is to say, aging. So we have today uh, the author of uh, a new book called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. And Dr. Andrew Steele is joining us all the way from the United Kingdom. He uh, got a PhD in physics at the University of Oxford. And then he realized that aging was the most important scientific challenge of our time, and he switched to computational biology. So he's written this wonderful book, and uh, uh, Dr. Steele is a full-time science writer and presenter. So uh, I'd like to welcome you, uh, Andrew, to the Commonwealth Club of California. Let's go, and let's hear about the science of aging. Fantastic. Thank you for that introduction, and thanks very much, uh, everybody, for coming along, and thanks for having me. Um, what I thought I'd do before we started is just give a little bit of an introduction to who I am. Uh, Robbie's already started doing that uh, just then by telling you that I started out actually as a physicist and ended up moving into first as a working as a computational biologist and then decided to make this another sideways jump in my career to becoming a full-time science writer and presenter. And I'm going to give you a bit of a flavor as to why that was throughout the talk, actually. I'm going to show you, um, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time dwelling on actually the graph that changed my career. Because, um, you know, I... I toward the end of my PhD in physics, started reading about these exciting results in aging biology. And I decided it's just the most important scientific challenge of our time. But also uh, the case I make in the book is the most important humanitarian challenge of our time. So, of course, this is uh, the cover of my book, Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. And the key thesis behind it is that aging is this enormous humanitarian challenge. It's something that a lot of us, I think, just consider an inevitable part of you know, the human condition. But actually, I really want to sort of expose it for what it is. It's this enormous humanitarian problem. And I think, you know, because people think it's so inevitable, they're often blind to the incredible developments in biology that have been happening in the last sort of 10, 20 years that have really shown us that aging isn't inevitable at all. We've actually got dozens of different ways in the lab, at least, to slow down and even reverse that process. And we've got loads of examples of animals throughout the animal kingdom that age in very, very different ways to human beings. And what that means is we've got on the one hand this most enormous humanitarian challenge, all of these people growing old and all of the problems associated with it. Now, on the other hand, we've got this incredible scientific revolution that's underway that's giving us the scientific tools to rise to that challenge. And it's that combination that just really, really sort of thrilled me as a physicist, you know, looking around to try and work out how you could have the biggest impact of this career. And uh, that, that means that I think that ultimately, I think the idea of treating aging is going to be the biggest revolution in medicine since the discovery of antibiotics. And I'll explain a bit more about why that is as we go through the talk. 
But I'm going to start out by showing you this, uh, this, this incredibly significant graph, at least a significant graph to me, that changed me from physics to biology. It's actually a very simple graph. You've got along the bottom here is how old you are. And then moving up the side, we've got your um, chance of death in that given year. And obviously, everyone knows that the older you are, the more likely you are to die. But just how much more likely really surprised me. So without further ado, that is the curve in question. And I think the best way to make sense of this incredible rise in death is just to go through some of the numbers and, and talk about what they mean. So if you look at the very left-hand end of the graph there, if you're aged zero, and this graph is for people who are born in, uh, you know, fortunate enough to be born in the richer parts of the world, then you've got about a 0.5% chance of not making your first birthday. And that's because you could be born in some kind of congenital problem. You could, you know, develop a very, very young age cancer. You could die of an infectious disease before your immune system has fully had time to develop. And that means about one in 200 babies don't make it to their first birthday. But actually, your odds of death go on Im uh, improving, or I should say, you know, your odds of death go on decreasing, which is obviously an improvement uh, throughout your childhood. And by the age of 10, you reach this point at which you have an incredible title. Current 10-year-olds are the safest human beings in the history of our species. They've got a less than 1 in 10,000 chance of dying in that year. And I think that's just remarkable. Just you know, think about quite how unlikely 10-year-olds are to die, you know, quite how ro robust those tiny little bodies really are. But unfortunately, of course, looking at this graph, it's all downhill or rather on this graph uphill from there. Our chance of death just goes on increasing from that sort of miraculous age of 10. So by the time you're 18, you've got about a one in 3000 chance of death. If you're in your 30s, like me, your odds of chance, uh, sorry, your odds of death in any given year are somewhere in the region of one in a thousand. And it's worth thinking for a moment about just what that actually means. Like if my odds of death were to be able to continue at roughly one in a thousand for the rest of my life, I'd live into my thousand and thirties on average, you know, because a, a one in a thousand chance of death every year is eventually going to catch up with me, but probably not for another 10 centuries time. And that's absolutely amazing because, you know, maybe it's not quite as safe as a 10 year old, but it's really remarkable that bodies of people in their 20s, their 30s, even their 40s, are in this, you know, such an exquisitely balanced state that the chances of them sort of falling off the tightrope of life in one direction or the other in a sufficiently major way that they end up dying is just incredibly slim. But unfortunately, um, the problem with uh, human sort of risk of death is that it, it starts to increase pretty rapidly. And in fact, it's an exponential increase. And we've all seen over the course of the last 18 months with the pandemic quite how significant an exponential increase can be. It starts out very small, perhaps doesn't look like a very great deal of change, but suddenly it can become very big very quickly. And actually, our chance of death as human beings doubles about every eight years. And what that means is it starts out as, you know, say, one in a thousand in your 30s. But by the time you're 65, your odds of death are about 1%. You know, you won't make your 66th birthday. And again, those actually aren't terrible odds. If that were to continue for the rest of your days, you'd live to 165 on average. But clearly, that isn't the case. And actually, by the time you've got a risk of death of 1% in a year, then that's a big enough number that doubling it starts to you know, become quite a significant factor. So if you're lucky enough to make it to the age of 80, your odds of not making it to 81 are about 1 in 20, somewhere around 5%. And if you're lucky enough to make it into your 90s, which is obviously off the top of this graph here, then your risk of death in one of those years is about one in six. And that's life and death at the roll of a dice. It's just this incredible increase in mortality from you know, back in the glory days when you were 10 years old. So there are a couple of different ways that you can look at this graph. And the first is as a human being. You know, you can look at this and it's a bit terrifying, frankly. You've got this exponential wall of mortality sort of coming towards you at this inexorable pace of one year per year. But as a scientist, you know, as a physicist coming to the end of his PhD, there's a, there's a really fascinating question that this graph sort of represents. And that question is, given that human beings have this incredibly consistent and incredibly rapid increase in risk of death at a certain moment in their lives, and depending on where you draw the line, the 60s or 70s or 80s, their risk of death really goes up very suddenly. And this happens, you know, across uh, different populations, across humans all across the world. 
why is it, you know, what is it in our biology? What fundamental process is driving this incredible increase in risk of death? And that's the sort of big scientific question. And in order to get to the bottom of that scientific question, we're going to have to ask a, uh, the obvious question. You know, what is this process? Well, it's aging. So what is aging? Well, when you mention aging to most people, they think of a few different things. Uh, one idea is you think of the obvious cosmetic signs. I think that's the thing that springs to most of our minds. You know, things like the wrinkles, the gray hair, the hair loss, uh, particularly if you're a man. These are the obvious external factors, you know, things that are going on on the outside of our bodies. And what these things happening on the outside of our bodies really reflect is what's going on on the inside. And the thing that really scares me as a biologist and you know, thinking about this from a medical point of view is the increase in risk of diseases, things like cancer, heart disease, stroke and dementia. They're the four biggest killers in the modern world. And, you know, this, this risk of disease just goes on increasing and increasing. And it's the aging process, the slow, steady biological changes that are happening inside your body that primarily drive that increase. You know, you can smoke, you can drink, you can eat badly, you can not get enough exercise. There are loads of things you can do that can have a negative impact on your health but at the end of the day none of them is as significant as this sort of unavoidable process of merely getting older you can be a chain smoking heavy drinking you know overweight 30 year old and in terms of risk of disease at least you're in a better state than a perfectly clean living healthy you know normal weight 80 year old so clearly there's something happening in our biology there then there's other stuff that you know, some of which we call diseases, some of which we call uh, we don't call diseases. We might you know label as things like frailty or other kinds of loss. Primarily, is what I've called these different things: loss of vision, loss of hearing, loss of muscle mass, and that kind of thing. And what this umbrella really covers, you know, it's not the loss necessarily of those specific senses or faculties. It's the loss of your independence. It's the loss of the ability to you know get on with your hobbies, to play with your grandkids, to even you know potentially get around the house as you get later into the stages of these things. And that, I think, is why ageing is really this humanitarian problem, because it isn't just about dying. It's about all the various you know, unfortunate things that can happen on the way to that cause of death. And then finally, there are the things that aren't necessarily strictly sort of ageing per se, but they're things that are made much worse by the process of getting older. And these are things like infections and injuries. Stuff that we shrug off as a younger person, but can be massively, massively significant if you uh, have one of these things happen to you when you're a bit older. So take the example of breaking a bone. If you're a young person, and you break a bone, you know, you go to hospital, you have it set, you might have a plaster cast put on. And then, you know, you stick around in that plaster cast for, you know, maybe a few weeks, maybe a month or two if it's, if it's a bad break. But basically you shrug it off, you heal, you get better. But if you're an older person and you break a bone, a really common bone to break is your hip. You can end up in hospital for an incredibly extended period of time. You're lying down in bed for a huge amount of time, so you lose a load of muscle mass. You could contract a hospital-acquired infection. A break of a bone for an older person can be the end of their life. And even if it doesn't ultimately result in them dying, it can be an enormous change because, you know, you come out of hospital, you've lost all that muscle mass. You're much less able to get around. And that means, you, you know, you can't engage in exercise. You can't do the things that keep you healthy. And so it can be a real start of a spiral of decline. So this is the sort of panoply of different things that happen to us as we age from, you know, wrinkles and gray hair to various different diseases to various different kinds of loss. And fundamentally, you know, this is what is underlying this graph that I showed you back at the beginning of the talk. Um, you know, the reason that things are carrying on increasing, the reason our risk of death increases is because of this smorgasbord of suffering. And actually what's causing the deaths directly is those diseases. So if we look at a very similar graph, we've still got age along the bottom, obviously, but up the side, instead of chance of death, we've got your chance of coming down with a particular disease. We can look at the lines for cancer, heart disease, stroke, dementia. And what you can see is that all of these follow that same sort of terrifying exponential pattern. Dementia is a really good example, actually, because it's almost unheard of in people underneath under the age of 60. So, you know, people, unless you've got a genetic predisposition, a particular mutation that causes you to get what's called early onset dementia, almost nobody gets it before their 60s. But then actually, after that point, the risk of dementia doubles every four or five years, so faster even than the risk of death itself. 
And it's, it's, you know, the combination of these different things, these are basically what kills you. So this is why our risk of death increases exponentially. It's because the risk of these diseases is increasing exponentially. To give you another example, this disgusting mucusy green line here is uh, the risk of getting a chest infection. This isn't just a cough or a sniffle. It's something that gets you know, nice and deep down into your lungs and can, can lay you pretty low for a while. And what you can see is that even in you know sort of your your, your prime, even in your, your youth, you've still got a 1% or 2% chance of getting a chest infection every year. It's not something that's totally unheard of. But you can see that at either end of life, either when you're very young and you haven't got a fully developed immune system and your body's just a bit less resilient overall, or as you get older and your body and your immune system are starting to weaken, your odds of getting one of these things, and in fact, the odds of them becoming serious are much, much greater. And of course, you know, chest infections aren't making such big news at the moment as the thing that's really in the news all over the place, the coronavirus pandemic. So just to give you one more example of this, um, again, age and years, and then your chance of death if you contract coronavirus. It looks like this. It's another terrifying exponential graph that doubles faster than the risk of death itself. In fact, uh, you know, if you catch coronavirus in your 80s, you are literally hundreds of times more likely than someone in their 30s to die of the disease. And that's because of this you know, whole range of factors, not just the weakening of the, weakening of the immune system, but also the reduction in what's called reserve, you know, the sort of the reserve that your body has to fight off various different insults, be that a, you know, a hip injury or be that a, a coronavirus. Now, obviously, this has changed dramatically now because most people in the US and the UK and some of the richer parts of the world have already been vaccinated, especially if they're in those older age groups. And so that obviously transforms what this curve looks like. But before those vaccinations came into play, clearly aging was a huge, huge driver of you know the deaths in the pandemic. So I think looking at this graph, there's something that this graph really explodes a myth. I think there's this there's this sort of pervasive myth that you can die of old age. And the sort of way that's visualized is that you're, you know, you're old, you're wrinkly, you've got gray hair. So you've got these cosmetic signs. You go to bed one night, you know, you're basically fit and healthy. Maybe you're a bit slower than you were, but then painlessly, you just don't wake up the next morning. But that is almost never the case. It's not to say it never happens, but it's very, very rare. Most of the ways that people who are older die are of one of these diseases. And most of the ways that these diseases kill you, they're slow, they're drawn out. You know, if you die of heart disease, a few people, if they're quote unquote lucky, I guess you could look at it that way, just suddenly have a heart attack and, you know, in the middle, hopefully of an enjoyable activity and keel over dead. But actually, mostly heart disease is a progressive condition. It, it, it does indeed sap away your independence. It reduces your ability to exercise. Then, you know, as I say, play with your grandkids and eventually can get severe enough that you can't climb the stairs without being incredibly out of breath and so on and so on. So it really does have this huge effect on quality of life. And the treatments can be grueling too. If you think about chemo or radiotherapy for cancer, these things can take years to finally kill you. And they do so in this variety of fairly unpleasant ways. If you think about the average 80-year-old, they have five different diagnoses, uh, you know, things that are wrong with them, basically. And they're taking an average of five different medications in order to deal with those problems. So, you know, this isn't just a picture of health that you can then suddenly fall off the end of a cliff. This is really caused by all of those diseases. So back to my favorite graph, uh, just uh, you know, one more time. This is, as I say, a graph that did change my career. So you'll forgive me for showing, showing it to you quite often. The last thing that you might think looking at this graph is that this is something that we in the wealthy parts of the world are sort of perversely lucky enough to have. We're lucky enough to live long enough that we get a significant way up this curve. And what that means is that we can suffer from the degenerative diseases of aging. Now, in the pre-Zoom era, what I would normally have done is done a quiz because this uh, and the, the quiz is, and, and, you know, you can do this at home. Even if I can't get you to stick your hands up and tell me what you think the answer is. Just uh, think in your head, how old do you think the global life expectancy is? So how long do you think the average person on planet Earth lives? Not just the rich countries, but all of the countries on the, in the world average together. 
And the reason I like to do this as a quiz is because um, if you do surveys, if you look at the survey data on this, people wildly underestimate how long uh, people around the world are living. We, we tend to estimate it by 10, maybe even 20 years. And the reason is, I think, a lot of us were taught at school that there's a very large developing world, you know, poor parts of the world where they have uh, less healthcare, less sanitation, worse um, food. Ev- everything about these countries is, is impoverished, basically. And so we imagine they've got much, much shorter lifespans as a result. But actually, the sort of double-edged sword, the good news and the bad news, and I'm going to put you out of your misery now, is that the most recent value we have for global life expectancy back in 2019, 72.6 years old. And that's because a lot of those developing countries have really, really rapidly accelerated through these changes in life expectancy in the last 50 years or so. And they're really snapping at our heels now in the rich world. And that means that most people in most countries are living long enough to grow old. Now, as I said, this is sort of a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, this is fantastic news. It means, means people in all most countries in the world are living longer, healthier lives than ever before. But on the other side of the coin, as someone who's you know, obviously interested in aging, it means that most people in most countries are living long enough to suffer from the cancer, the heart disease, the dementia. And a lot of the people who are doing that in poorer countries are doing so in places where the healthcare systems just aren't set up to deal with these chronic diseases of aging. So it's an even bigger problem potentially being stored up in the poor world than in the richer parts of the world. So if we were to aggregate this together, the bad news is that um, if you look at the 150,000 people who die every single day on planet Earth, and every single one of these little uh, stick figures is uh, represents 1,000 humans, then over two-thirds of them, more than 100,000 people a day, are killed by aging, by the cancer, by the dementia, and so on. That means that aging is responsible for by far the majority of deaths. And as I hope I've really illustrated to you in the last few minutes of the talk, um, this isn't just you know, people dying, although death is a nice, easy statistic. You know, it's very unambiguous whether someone's dead or not. What these represent is a huge quantity of suffering. It's millions, billions of people gradually deteriorating over decades, getting these horrible diseases, you know, suffering along the way to the along the path to death. So this could be a pretty depressing book, pretty pretty depressing first part of a talk. What is it that we can do about it? Well, I promise this is the last time I'm going to show you my favorite graph. As I said, humans' risk of death doubles about every eight years, but this is not a universal throughout the animal kingdom. And actually, this is an animal that really doesn't display that property. This is something called a hydra. It's about a centimeter long. It's a little pond creature. And its risk of death, if you uh, observe it, looks a bit more like this. Now, obviously, we haven't gone all the way through to do this experiment. We think their risk of death stays approximately constant at about 0.2% every single year. And that's incredible because it means that if you sort of extrapolate that outwards, and as I say, we haven't had the time effectively to do this experiment, but about 10% of the hydra would still be alive after a thousand years, which is just a phenomenal lifespan for this incredibly simple organism. But what's more uh, more important and more exciting than the fact they could live a thousand years is that they have a property called negligible senescence. So this, um, you know, senescence is just the biological word for getting older. Negligible obviously just means not much of it. So they they don't get old. Their risk of death is flat as a function of time, and that means they, in this very statistical sense, at least don't age. They you know have a set the same risk of death, the same risk of you know hydra diseases throughout their lives, and that's something you know given that hydra can do it. Why can't humans do it too? Could we work out a way to be a bit more hydra? Now, you might be looking at that and thinking, come on, Andrew, you know, this centimeter long pond creature, it's got a handful of cells. You've got trillions of cells. We're a much more complicated thing. How on earth could we possibly hope to emulate this little creature's ideas you know, in our own biology? And obviously, it's not quite going to be as simple as transplanting a few hydra immortality genes and you know, sorting our biology out that way. But although the hydra is, is sort of one of the most spectacular examples, there are some other creatures that do this as well. This is a beautiful ambassador, I think, for the idea of negligible senescence, for the idea of aging well. Even though you might not think uh, that they look like it, this is a Galapagos tortoise. They're wrinkled, uh, they hobble along at an incredibly slow speed, even in youth. 
but the Galapagos tortoise, uh, the reason there's, this is actually on the cover of the UK version of my book, and the reason there's a tortoise or a turtle on, on the covers of the books is that they too have this negligible senescence property. The Galapagos tortoise, we think, has a maximum lifespan of somewhere in the region of 170, 180 years. Um, what's most exciting, again, isn't how long these tortoises live. It's the fact that they do so without seemingly aging. They have a risk of death that's basically constant with time in adult- adulthood. And not only, you know, the hydra, you can say its risk of death is relatively constant, but the tortoises, you can observe, they don't become more frail. They can still, they're still just as sprightly when they're aged 150 as they are when they're aged 30, which is to say, obviously not very sprightly. They are tortoises, but, you know, they're they're still getting about. They're still engaging in their daily activities. They're still reproductively active. There's um, the oldest tortoise in the world at the moment is a a guy called Jonathan. He's actually a slightly different uh, species of tortoise, but he's living on an island called St. Helena. And there was an article that I read in uh, from a newspaper a few years ago saying that he still likes to get it on with the ladies. So he's still living a very full life. Um, you know, and what, what happens is, you know, these tortoises do die eventually. This is Harriet, um, a Galapagos tortoise, the oldest one that's on record. She died aged 177 of a heart attack, but she just died 100 years later than a human would of a heart attack. And so I think that's something that we can very much aspire to. And they are, you know, much, much closer to us, evolutionarily speaking, than a hydra is. And again, you might be thinking tortoises, they're, they're quite different. They're cold-blooded. You know, they're much slower moving. Maybe they just live more slowly than we do. But another example of an animal that has an incredible lifespan compared to its size, at least, is this little thing. Now, you might be thinking, Andrew, that's a penis with teeth. It's actually an animal called a naked mole rat. And these are some of the most incredible uh, long-lived animals that we have, uh, that we, we've, we've uncovered so far. It's about the size of a rat or a mouse. And a rat or a mouse can live, you know, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four years on the outside in the lab. And yet these little things can live into their 30s. And most importantly, even though they look incredibly wrinkly, again, it seems that all of these ambassadors for negligible senescence have, uh, you know, they're not the most beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful creatures. But nonetheless, these animals appear to be negligibly senescent in the sense of not becoming frail. They stay reproductively active, as I was already mentioning. You know, they stay cognitively active throughout their lives. So this really is, it's a mammal. It's much, much more similar to us than a hydra or tortoises. So the question is, how can we be more naked mole rat? Another thing I'd just like to mention about these things is that they're almost cancer proof. We actually thought it was impossible for a naked mole rat to get cancer until we started studying larger and larger colonies of them and found a handful of these creatures that actually had the disease. But nonetheless, you know, it's, it's much, much rarer for these things to get cancer than it is for humans too, even though we're, um, even though they live such an incredibly long time for their size. So the question is, you know, how can we be more naked mole rat? How can we be more hydra as human beings? How can we reduce our risk of death and come back to try and be more negligibly senescent? And so I'm going to return to this question, what is ageing? And what I'd like to tell you is that, you know, this slide I showed you before, although it's perhaps an intuitive conception of what ageing is, it's really a cheat. Because actually everything on this slide that I've shown you is, you know, a, a massive broad category. I mean, take cancer. There are hundreds of different kinds of cancer. If you take memory loss, there are just so many different diverse ways that you can lose your memory. There are different kinds of dementia. There are different processes that go on that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily go as far as to call dementia, but can cause cognitive decline happening at many different scales inside your body. You know, some of it's going on inside cells, some of it's going on between cells, some of it affects the blood vessels in your brain, all of these different ways that you can, you know, lose cognitive function as time goes by. So this this slide is really very much a cheat. And actually, although it's a cheat, I think it really illustrates the, the methodology with which we approach these age-related problems. We approach them often medically in silos. So if you you know find a lump on your body somewhere, you go to your GP and they tell you, oh, that looks a bit serious. We're going to have to send you to an oncologist, a cancer doctor. They'll then take a look. They take a biopsy. They find out it actually is cancer. They'll give you chemotherapy or radiotherapy. They might operate on it to try and remove the lump and so on and so on. But this is all very focused on your cancer care and doesn't really consider the fact that most people who get cancer 
cancer are old themselves. They've already got a variety of other problems. They're becoming frail. They might have a heart condition that's sort of brewing in the works, even if it isn't their primary uh, cause of concern at that particular moment in time. And we treat all of these things very much on an individual basis. And we often treat them quite uh, sort of palliatively rather than addressing the root cause. So, you know, if you've got something like muscle loss, sometimes you might be prescribed some physiotherapy, even that's you know unusual. You're more likely just to be given a walking stick. And so we try and paper over these things rather than actually trying to attack the fundamental root causes. So what is aging? Well, actually, if you ask an aging biologist, you'll get a list a little bit more like this. And don't worry about reading every single one of those things. You know, there's, there's 10 of them and some of the some of the words are quite sciencey, though. I will explain the relevant ones, you know, what they mean. And you'll be relieved to hear I'm not going to go through all of these in the rest of the talk. What's really exciting about this is these are the 10 what are called hallmarks of the aging process. And these are the hallmarks I go through in the book. Um, It's actually adapted from a 2013 paper of the same name called The Hallmarks of Aging. They only had nine. There's been a bit of intervening science. I jiggled things around a bit, added an extra one and ended up coming up with 10 for a variety of sort of scientific and narrative reasons. But what's really exciting about these 10 hallmarks is that these, although they are categories, you know, there are still various different, for example, talking about stem cell therapy, there are various different populations of stem cells in your body that might need therapy. They're much, much smaller categories than cancer. And each of these causes, each of these hallmarks drives a multitude of age-related diseases. So a variety of different things are caused by these individual hallmarks. To try and make this all a bit less abstract, what I'd like to do is show you, um, firstly, what these are, and secondly, how we could think about potentially treating them and preventing this range of age-related problems, just by going through a couple of examples. And the first one I'm going to talk about is telomeres. And one of the reasons I'm going to talk about this is this is a very common question you get when you know you tell people you're uh, working on a book on aging biology, because they've often you know heard of this. This is something that was really really big news in the sort of late '90s, early 2000s. Telomeres and an enzyme called telomerase. So how is it that these things affect uh, you know the course of aging and can affect a range of different diseases? Well, let's have a look at what a tel- telomere looks like on the microscopic level. This is a picture of what you might see if you were to zoom in very, very deep into one of your cells and look in the nucleus, the part of your cell that contains the DNA. Each of these blue things is a chromosome, so it's a particular length of DNA. And then on the ends of the chromosomes, you have these little green and red fluorescent markers, they're called. So the scientists have made these uh, little bits of DNA glow. And these are the telomeres. They're the caps on the end of that DNA. So the normal DNA is bundled up into these chromosomes at the individual lengths. And at the ends of those lengths, you have the telomeres. And if we were to zoom in even further and take uh, rather than a sort of microscope view, we would take a sort of chemical view. DNA is made up of four what are called uh, bases, chemical letters, effectively, A, T, C and G. And these letters are arranged, you know, they're the code by which life is written. But if you view, uh, zoom in on a telomere, what you'd see is this pattern, just repeated, effectively nonsense, T-T-A-G-G-G, 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 hundreds or even thousands of times as far as the eye can see. And so you've got to wonder, you know, why is it that our chromosomes, these beautiful, intricate, information-dense, you know, huge packets of genes and information on how your cells should work, the instruction manual for life, why is it that they're capped with this, you know, endless, repeated nonsense? And the reason is that evolution actually created telomeres to solve a couple of rather ridiculous problems. So there are two issues here. The first is that when evolution, uh, when, when your cell spots a loose bit of DNA flailing around inside one of your cells, it thinks there's a problem there. And the reason is that loose DNA probably means that you might have started with a continuous strand of DNA. And if that continuous strand breaks, then the body needs to quickly glue those two pieces back together again to make sure there aren't any problems. 
And that means you've got these things called uh, double strand repair enzymes that can go in and grab those things and stick them back together again, basically. So if you just had an end of a chromosome, which is an entirely natural piece of sort of loose flailing DNA flailing about the place, then your body would fuse them all into one massive mega chromosome and it would cause, you know, basically DNA chaos. And so in order to avert that, your body creates these telomeres, these lengths of repeated sections. And then there are other proteins uh, that can go and stick onto these repeated sections and basically protect it. And the analogy that's sometimes given is they're a bit like the caps on the end of your shoelaces um, that, um, you know, that protect them from fraying. And that's, you know, they protect them from fraying, they protect them from the, the cell aberrantly sticking them back together. The other problem, and the one that's probably more relevant for aging, is that uh, when your cells divide, they have to copy that DNA because it means that both daughter cells have to have a copy of that instruction manual in order to go about their business. And when those copies are made, um, there's a strange, strange problem that evolution hasn't managed to solve in, in, in other than rather a stupid way, which I'll explain in a second. So the problem is that when um, your DNA is copied, the DNA copying enzymes chug along along the DNA and they, they you know, produce these A's, T's, C's and G's in order to precisely copy the DNA. But then when they get to the end, they can't quite make it all the way to the end of a chromosome. And you can imagine this like a builder who's going along, standing on top of the wall that she's adding bricks to. And when she gets to the very final brick, she can't add that final brick because she's already standing there. She's in her own way. And that means that, you know, you effectively lose a brick at the end of the wall every time the, the wall is copied. And that exact same thing happens in, or a sort of related thing happens inside our DNA when that's being reproduced as our cells divide. And so evolution could have come up with a much cleverer DNA repair, uh, sorry, DNA copying enzyme that could nonetheless get all the way to the end of the DNA. Or it could do what it has done and just add bunch of, a bunch of repeated nonsense on the end of our chromosomes. So if you lose a little bit of that every time a cell divides, you know, it just doesn't really matter from an evolutionary point of view. There's no important genetic information stored inside your telomeres. And so if you just lop off, you know, 10 or 100 bases every time a cell, a cell divides, it doesn't really matter. And so, there's, you know, there's no serious consequences for the cell. And so that's why evolution came up with the idea of telomeres. But you can start to see from that already how this might be a cause of aging, because every time your cells divide, your telomeres get shorter. And there's going to come a point where you're going to run out of telomere. So the question is, what do telomeres look like as you age? And this is another graph where we've got age along the bottom. And we've got your length of your telomeres in bases, so in DNA letters up the side. And if we stick some data onto this graph, you can see it looks a little bit like that. There's definitely a correlation as in, you know, there's a relationship between how old you are and the length of your telomeres, but it's not a fantastically strong correlation. And you can see, you know, looking at this graph, the spread is really, really wide. And in fact, there are some unlucky 20-year-olds who have uh, telomeres of a similar length to some lucky 90-year-olds. And clearly, you know, there's also some uh, some strange artifacts in the data up here, because otherwise, who is this person? Are they telomere wolverine? How have they got such incredible telomeres at, uh, you know, at this age in their life? It's not a perfect marker by any stretch. However, if you actually do, you know, do some maths and try and plot a straight line, there is, as I said, a correlation. And it looks like telomeres go down by, on average, 20 um, bases, 20 DNA letters per year of adult life. And so, you know, that's that's the sort of starting point. And as I said, you know, there's this suggestion that it could be a cause of aging. One of the other things that sort of is a smoking gun to blame telomeres is that people who are of a particular age but have shorter telomeres than average for that age are at increased risk of various age-related diseases. They can be at increased risk of death. So clearly having shorter telomeres appears to be a bad thing, even though it's not, um, not super clear. It's not this sort of perfect correlation. It's not a, a, a clock sort of ticking fantastically accurately down to your demise. There's clearly something going on here. Now, what happened is that, you know, we discovered that telomeres were getting shorter. And the question is, is there a way that we can lengthen telomeres? And of course, there is a way that we can lengthen telomeres. It's an enzyme called telomerase. And this was discovered um, back in the sort of 1980s and 1990s. It was um, actually the, the discoverers were awarded the Nobel Prize. It's a really significant uh, discovery. 
And the idea is that telomerase is simply an enzyme that can go and add more of these repeats onto the end of your DNA, you know, so they can extend those telomeres. And that's really, really important in certain parts of your body. Because if you think about, you know, for example, in an egg cell, uh, when, the, when the egg and the sperm fuse, you're going to have a new baby, you're going to need to extend those telomeres because that egg cell is going to have that fertilized egg is going to have to divide a lot of times to turn into a whole adult human. So, you know, telomerase comes on, extends those telomeres and keeps, you know, keep, keeps the telomeres long enough that we can have, we can have babies, we can have new life. However, in most adult cells, telomerase is deactivated. And having, you know, just heard what I've told you, that, um, that your telomeres get shorter with every cell division and therefore that gets, they get shorter and shorter throughout your life and that predisposes you to disease, you might be thinking, well, that seems like a stupid idea. Why has evolution turned off this really important gene in most of our cells for most of our adult life? And the reason is that it's trying to prevent cancer. So let's think about what cancer is. Cancer is essentially a disease where cells divide and divide and divide indefinitely without ever stopping. And so, um, you know, the way that that works is a cell gains a certain combination of mutations, a certain combination of mistakes in its DNA that turn off genes that tell the cell to stop dividing. They turn on genes to tell it to go, go, go. And that combination of genes allows the cell to, to get, you know, to divide and divide and divide. Eventually, it can get big enough to form a tumor. That tumor might then be able to metastasize, to spread around your body. And that's ultimately the way that cancer kills you, by just dividing and dividing indefinitely, even though that's obviously not a benefit to the body as a whole. Those cells, you know, are, are sort of benefiting in a sort of weird uh, and rather unpleasant way for the rest of the body. So that's what cancer is. So telomeres are quite a good cancer prevention mechanism. Because if you notice that a cell has got what's called critically short telomeres, you know, it's, it's obviously divided a lot of times. You could tell that cell, oh, you know, you've, you've divided a lot of times now, mate. I think, you know, you're, you're, looking, you're looking at risk of becoming cancerous. And the cell can either commit cell suicide in a process called apoptosis, or it can stop dividing. It can enter a, a state called cellular senescence. I remember senescence, I said, it was just the, the scientific word for aged. So sort of aged cells. Um, and hold that thought, because we're going to come back to that as another hallmark of aging in a moment. Um, and therefore, you know, these cells stop dividing and that seems to be, you know, that, that stops cancer in its tracks. So one of the things that cancer has to do in order to manifest in your body is it has to turn that telomerase gene back on. So that's how, you know, that's one of the sort of prerequisites that cancer has to tick in order to, in order to be able to divide an indefinite number of times. So obviously other stuff needs to go wrong to make cancer happen as well. But th this is just, as I say, one sort of box that cancer has to tick. So. Back in the early 2000s, telomeres had been discovered, telomerase had been discovered, and scientists were wondering what happens if you give mice an extra copy of telomerase, which builds up their telomeres. And the result basically was cancer. And actually, you know, that really popped the telomeres and telomerase bubble for a long time because it seemed that, well, exactly as I've sort of just warned you about, I spent a long time sort of warning you about on the previous slide, um, activating telomerase increases the risk of cancer it doesn't actually cause cancer as such but it pre-ticks a box on cancer's list and it meant the mice were at much much greater risk of cancer it didn't extend their lifespan you know it, it seemed to basically just be a bad thing and as i say this really really you know burst the bubble it caught on i think both in scientific and popular circles because in the late 90s there was a lot of buzz i remember you know when i was um when i was still at school watching documentaries about how oh, we've discovered telomerase it's the fountain of youth we're going to all be living forever as a result of turning this into some kind of human treatment and then the wonderful cynical narrative comes and overpowers that and says you know telomerase well it's not all that because actually it's a huge cancer risk so that basically you know, seemed to put a stop to all of that. But thankfully, some scientists persisted. They sort of continued to believe in telomerase. And some more recent results have made us more optimistic that this might be something that we can uh, do to try and uh, alleviate our own aging. One of the first experiments was in 2008, and uh, mice were given an extra copy of various genes, not just telomerase here, but also these three genes. I'm not going to go into detail about what they do. They're basically anti-cancer genes. They make cells more likely to commit suicide or go senescent if they're at risk of becoming cancerous.
And what they found was that by giving telomerase with anti-cancer genes, you actually got a 40% increase in lifespan for the mice that were given this cocktail and no extra cancer above you know, mice that hadn't been given this cocktail of genes. So it shows that you know, maybe naively intervening in biology, just going in and turning on telomerase isn't, isn't, isn't sufficient to extend lifespan because evolution is, is often quite clever. However, we can be cleverer than evolution if we make even you know, a small number of additional changes. If we try and offset that known cancer risk by giving some anti-cancer genes, we can extend the lifespan of mice. And then uh, in 2012, there was a treatment given that was, I think, slightly more exciting for humans because um, obviously we, we aren't all fortunate enough to have been born with a bunch of genetic modifications. What happened here is that adult mice aged about a year, and that's something like maybe 40 human years old, um, because obviously mice have much shorter lifespans than humans do. So mice in middle age, basically, were given an injection of temporary telomerase, a gene therapy that activated the telomerase temporarily extended those telomeres but didn't give it permanent activation which is something that might be handy for cancer and what they found was that those mice lived about 20 percent longer and they again didn't seem to get any additional cancer compared to control mice in the experiment so um and, and, and i should say not only this this isn't just about lifespan um they also had higher bone density and i think one of the things i find most entertaining about reading mouse papers especially as a, a computational biologist who never dealt with them in the lab is the variety of different uh, interesting tests they had to subject the mice to to demonstrate whether they're aging faster or more slowly or not these mice are actually better at walking a tightrope as well so you know that's sort of an indication that they're less frail they've got a better sense of balance and so on so it seems that this telomerase therapy could potentially alleviate aging uh, certainly alleviate aging in mice and could potentially you know be something that we think about using in humans. So back to this list of hallmarks, um, I've just described the idea of using uh, telomerase to try and increase the length of our telomeres and try and reduce their reduce their reduction in length with age. Another really exciting idea is this idea of doing something about senescent cells. And I've already actually given you a bit of a hint about senescent cells. They're these cells that have divided too many times. Um, and another way that they can become senescent is they might have a bit of DNA damage that... Um, that then uh, makes your body think they're about to become cancerous. And so again, your body will put on the brakes and stop them from divi dividing. The problem is that when a cell becomes senescent, it starts emitting this cocktail of toxic molecules. And that might seem like a bit of a strange thing for a cell to do. You know, why is it polluting its environment with this, with this horrible stuff? The answer is they're, 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 they're not toxic as long as they're only turned on for a short time. What they basically are is they're distress flares. They're saying, hey, I'm over here. I'm a cell. I've gone senescent. Um, can you please come and clear me up? And they're calling out to the immune system to come and, to come and gobble them up. And in youth, that is exactly what happens. Our immune systems are attracted over rapidly. They destroy these senescent cells. And you know, basically, the cycle of life continues inside our bodies. Unfortunately, as we age, these cells seem to accumulate. And the reasons for that are, firstly, they're produced more commonly as we get older. So if you think about... Um, you know, you're older, your cells have divided more times, they've had more opportunities to get DNA damage. So all the processes that cause senescence are increasing and, you know, accumulating with time. Then on the other side of the balance, your immune system, which is normally what clears these cells up, is getting weaker. It's becoming uh, immunosenescence, we call it. And actually, ironically, some of that is caused by the immune cells themselves becoming senescent. So it's this sort of vicious circle that causes senescent cells to build up. So as they pump out these molecules, they aren't just calling over the immune system. They're also driving a process called chronic inflammation, which effectively accelerates the aging process. Now, um, this, you know, this, this is therefore clearly a candidate for a hallmark of aging. The thing that's the most convincing evidence is that we can actually give drugs to mice now that remove their senescent cells and leave the rest of the cells in their body intact. These are drugs called senolytics. And what uh, scientists did in 2015, they gave some of these drugs to mice aged 24 months. I've already mentioned that mice obviously age more quickly than we do. 24 months is about 70 in human years. These are you know, pretty, pretty old mice. Given these senolytics, they basically get biologically younger. 
So the first thing to say is they live a little bit longer, maybe a few months, which is perhaps a few years in human terms. Um, but they don't just sort of stagger on in geriatric ill health. These mice are they're, they're, they're healthier. They're, they're, as I say, younger for longer. They um, they get they get less cancer. They get less heart disease. They get fewer cataracts. So a whole range of diseases is prevented. Um, they're, they're less frail. They can run further and faster on a little mousy treadmill. They're using these experiments. I told you that mice have these this sort of bizarre and wonderful gymnasium of different ways that they can test how old they are. They're more curious. So it seems to avert cognitive decline as well. Because if you put an old mouse in a maze, it tends to be a bit more anxious and less exploratory than a younger mouse is. But these senolytics rejuvenate some of that curiosity. And honestly, these animals, they just look great. They've got better fur. They've got plumper, thicker skin. As I said, I'm a computational biologist. I'm not used to dealing with mice. And it's just obvious that these animals, they look great. So clearly, senescent cells are a fundamental driver of a whole range of different age-related problems. And by getting rid of them, we can, um, we can start to slow down aging, even perhaps reverse aging in a variety of different ways. And what's really exciting about this is this isn't just something that's happening in mice in the lab. There are now 20 or 30 companies trying to turn senolytics from sort of a lab bench idea to something that we can actually use in the clinic. So this really is an idea that we could see, you know, in clinics relatively soon, probably for specific diseases at first. But if these drugs are effective and if they're safe, maybe we could be using them for the ultimate dream of anti-aging medicine, which is to try and apply these treatments preventatively to people who haven't really got anything quote unquote wrong with them. You know, people would currently consider medically healthy, but they're just old. They've just been around on the earth long enough to be susceptible uh, you know, to age-related diseases. And we could give them these senolytics remove some of those senescent cells and make them less likely to get cancer, make them less likely to get frail, just make them less likely to get ill in the first place and increase not just their lifespan, so how long they live, but really crucially increase their health span, so their healthy amount of time they spend healthy too. Okay, so that's sort of a, a, a rapid introduction to the science. I've told you what aging is. I've shown you a little bit about these hallmarks and how we might go about treating them. I thought I'd just finish the talk with um, what is in some ways a slightly bizarre question, but it's one that I get an awful lot which is, should we cure aging? The reason I consider this bizarre is because, you know, imagine I've just given a talk or written a book about cancer research, the brilliant new way that we've got to cure cancer. There'll be no one who would be in an audience of a talk like this and stick their hand up at the end and say, but Andrew, you know, what are we going to do with all these extra people? Aren't they going to get bored in their extended cancer-free lifespans? Aren't we going to cause overpopulation that's going to crush, crush the earth? Um, and you know, I just find it very strange that we place aging research, which is fundamentally just an extension of modern medicine. It's a way to prevent all of these diseases that we're very happy to sort of deal with and talk about individually. We place aging research into such a separate moral, social, ethical category. And so I just wanted to ask this question. And I think um, even though there are a lot of ethical issues that could be thrown up by people living longer, healthier lives, it would change you know, what it means to be human. It would change our societies. It would change all kinds of different things. I really do think the moral case for doing so is absolutely watertight. And I'm just going to give a quick example. Uh, and that example is the most common question I get, which is what about overpopulation? And the first thing I'd like to do is take issue with even classifying it as overpopulation, because that implies that the people are the problem, when actually it's the, uh, the richest 10% of people in the world emit 50% of the world's carbon dioxide, for example. It's, what, what we're really worried about is resource use, and that resource use is distributed very, very unevenly throughout the planet. And if we want to bring those 90% of people who are only emitting the other half of the carbon dioxide up to the same you know, level of, of well-being, of, of lifestyle that we are enjoying in the rich parts of the world, then we're already going to have to do something very, very serious about resources, even if population wants to do anything. And so I think it's much more important to characterize this as a resource issue rather than a population one. But nonetheless, it is helpful to think about it in population terms. It's a nice, easy thing to quantify. So I've got a graph here, which shows you uh, along the x-axis is time and up the y-axis, you've got the population of the planet Earth in billions of people. And this is sort of the story so far. Um, we've, we've got something like seven or eight billion people on the planet Earth at the moment, and that population is steadily increasing. 
So what I thought I'd do is I'd try and work out what would happen to the population if we did something really serious about ageing. So let's start by having a look at what we think is going to happen anyway. This is what's called the medium variant. It's the UN's best projections or best guess as to what they think is going to happen to the population between now and 2050. And that means that we think that by 2050, we're going to have a population of about 9.7 billion people if this medium variant, if the assumptions behind it turn out to be correct. So when we talk about treating aging, we're potentially talking about making people live longer and therefore they'll be around on the earth, you know, contributing to the population size for longer. And so I thought, how can I simulate this? I, you know, I'm not a demographer. I'm certainly not a demographic modeler, which is a, a whole sort of specialism in itself. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a very simple assumption. I'm going to imagine that we literally cure death, not just aging, but all forms of death in the year 2025. Now, that's a wildly optimistic assumption if you think that's a piece of human progress. It's a wildly pessimistic assumption if you're a population pessimist who's really worried about resource use. Let's have a look at what that does to the global population. As you can see, it does increase it. And it means by 2050, we'd have about 11.6 billion people. So almost 2 billion uh, more humans on the planet than we would in the case where we didn't cure death. And that means we're potentially going to have to work about 20% harder to solve problems like climate change, to solve problems like land use. And I think there are a variety of things to say about this. The first is, you know, that's not nothing. It's going to require us working harder. And 20% is, is not negligible. However, you've got to remember what's on the other side of the balance sheet here. We've got the single biggest cause of human suffering, we've got two thirds of deaths, and that, that's you know, only going to increase as the global population ages. And so I'd happily work 20% harder to solve all of our environmental problems if that meant we were going to have this huge bonus on the other side of the balance and that we're going to be able to reduce the amount of death and suffering from aging, from these age-related diseases, from cancer, you know, stop people getting dementia. These are all fantastically important goals. And the most important thing of all to say, of course, is this is an absolutely ridiculous scenario. This assumes that not only do we develop these drugs by 20 25, but we've got them in a form that humans can take and we roll them out literally globally at that moment. So clearly this is a this is sort of wildly, as I said, sort of optimistic stroke pessimistic scenario. Given that uh, actually the effort that's going to need to be expended if we do do something about aging is less than this, I just don't see this as a moral obstacle at all. Obviously, there are loads of other, oh, I was going to say that the, these error bands here are just caused by changing the birth rate. So you can see that even our uncertainty about how many, how many, basically how many children we're going to have has a huge, huge influence. It's almost as large as literally turning off death. So we've already got this uncertainty sort of baked into our future population. Obviously, there's loads more stuff that we could talk about, um, but I just wanted to give one last example of why this is such an important idea. And that's not just the moral case, but the economic one. And so what I'm going to show you now is the cost of aging to the US just by looking at not at the total cost of aging, but the cost of my four favorite favorites, probably the wrong word, but these four most common uh, killers in the modern world, these four massive age related diseases, cancer, heart disease, stroke and dementia. And these rectangles show their cost to the economy, not just to healthcare, but also to things like people giving up work because they're you know, either ill themselves or they're giving up work to look after an elderly relative who has one of these problems. And what you can see is that these numbers, well, they're huge. They're hundreds of billions. And ultimately, if you add all these things up, they come to nearly a trillion dollars. Um, this is obviously an underestimate of the true cost of aging because it doesn't count a whole load of other diseases. It doesn't count frailty. It doesn't count all kinds of different stuff. But this just gives you a ballpark. And then we can compare it to um, how much is spent on aging research. And in the US, you're lucky to have the NIA, the National Institute on Aging, which uh, looks, into the, the, you know, looks into the process of aging. And that little green square there isn't just a style thing. It's actually in proportion to the size of the amount of money that's spent. It's about three and a half billion dollars. And so to compare that to the four trillion, which is the total US spending on healthcare, it's less than a thousandth of that, even though age-related diseases are a huge driver of that healthcare spending. Okay, so that's already looking like quite a small amount, but actually it's even worse than that. There's a running joke in the uh, aging biology community, the NIA stands not for National Institute on Aging, but National Institute on Alzheimer's Disease, because about two of those three and a half billion go straight to the neuroscience division, effectively looking just into dementia. 
So that's already, you know, not looking into aging. It's looking to why the consequences of aging. Then there's various other stuff that the NIA does, things like gerontology, social gerontology, that kind of thing. The actual aging biology division, which is down here, only gets about $350 million a year. That's just over a dollar per American. And that's just ridiculously small compared to the scale of these problems. And actually, it's even worse than that suggests, because a lot of that research is looking into the fundamental causes of aging, but not how to do anything about them. And obviously, understanding the basic causes of aging is really, really critical if you do want to do something about them. But the amount that we invest in actually trying to do something about aging is just minuscule compared to the scale of the problem that aging is trying to solve. And so this fundamentally is the reason that I wrote this book, because working as a biologist, I found that biologists weren't as familiar as they should be with Asian biology. It's not commonly taught in undergraduate lecture level. Uh, it's not commonly in textbooks. Uh, my wife's a doctor and she never had a single lecture on aging biology during her undergrad degree. And she, you know, it's just not something you come across. Um, so we really, really need to raise the profile of this, both you know, scientists and doctors with, with ordinary people. I want people to be talking about this in bars and you know, at dinner parties as soon as those are safe to do again, of course, because uh, of the age that we currently live in. Hopefully that won't be too long. And policymakers need to know about this stuff because this is a huge economic problem, quite apart from the moral and social case uh, to do something about aging. So I just thought I'd finish, uh, in case you're interested, with a few links. Uh, I, you can get, uh, if you're interested in getting a copy of the book, you can go to link. I know you can also buy it from the Commonwealth Club Bookshop, so that's another good place to look as well. And here are just a few different places you can find out a bit more about me uh, on social media and that kind of stuff. I'm at Stato on Twitter. I'm Dr. Andrew Steele on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, Andrew J. Steele on Instagram. And I think that's just about it. So I think Robbie's going to come back now and we've got time for a few questions. Wow, that's quite a journey, Andrew. Thank you so much. I have a lot of questions, and of course, I have some from the audience, too. Look, let me start with my first question, which actually comes from the end of your book, and it relates perfectly to how you ended your talk. So there's a call to arms here, and you say, uh, I hope this book has convinced you that it's time for a mission-driven medical moonshot, a massively funded international program of research to intervene in the aging process. What would that look like, and how can we all help you achieve that goal? Oh, you've given away the ending. This is terrible. No one's going to read it now. Um, yeah, I think this is just a really, really important thing. And it's the reason I think the primary way that we're going to do this is just spreading the word about aging biology. And that's really why I wanted to write this book. Because I think I think something that's very important that people can do is start to write to politicians and engage with policymakers, you know, just tell anyone they know, particularly those people. Because the volume of posts in their post bags, I think, is a, a real way that politicians gauge, you know, what's hot and what's not and what voters care about in the world. But also they're going to respond to sort of broader uh, demographics of voting, you know, people understand understanding this thing and people knowing it's a really, really serious issue and just making the case in a variety of, of varied ways. Cause I, you know, I hope that I'm convincing speaking about this, but I know there are certain politicians who just, you know, wouldn't be interested in this very sort of dry statistical presentation. You could characterize it as that I've been trying to give here, you know, perhaps a, a more folksy story about, you know, particular old people or your particular experiences in life is going to drive it home to them. It's just really important that we, we talk to as many people as possible in as many ways as possible. And I really think, um, a huge part of this is going to have to be government funding. There's a huge and exciting space that I haven't really talked about in terms of things like venture capital and in terms of you know private equity starting to move into this field. And there are some really cool big investments. As I said, there are like 20 or 30 companies working on analytics. There are a lot of companies, you know, too many to count and sort of springing up every day, trying to do various interventions into the aging process. But what's really interesting is even though there are so many sort of privately fundable, and you know, I think wise investors are going to make a pretty penny off this you know, form of investment because the, the potential market is enormous. It's 
is, you know, it's every living human because we're all aging. Nonetheless, the investable opportunities are a small subset of the total opportunity in this field. And quite a lot of it needs government or philanthropic funding to bring it up to a point where we can all, you know, get involved, where, sorry, where we can get to the point where everyone can, you know, we can think about investing and think about spinning this stuff out where pharmaceutical companies, which always like to, you know, they, they like to see the data, they like to understand what they're getting into before they do any sort of speculative research and development. So I think a really, really important thing is just to get in touch with policymakers, you know, talk to your representatives, you know, write to the president, however it is that you try and engage people. I, I, you know, I'm encouraging people to write to their MPs here in the UK, which is, you know, our members of parliament. I think that's really critical. And just telling your friends, you know, telling doctors, telling scientists, because everyone needs to know how important this is. And it's going to be an effort that, you know, has many, many different layers to it. So so in that quote that I, I gave, you talked about a moonshot. And of course, the the uh, the project to land on the moon was was federally funded more, more or less, and it was something where you know the information, the data, the photos, the technology was in the public domain, and, and so we've also had the Human Genome Project, of course, which was a three billion dollar federally funded program, and and all the data was was put in the public domain. So so do you think that this big project that you're describing is something that could be conceived of in such a way? That to use your terminology, it's for the benefit of the commons, you know, for the benefit of the public, rather than, you know, fencing it off for all these private investor corporate interests who want to own basically life. How do you think I about think that? Yeah, I think there's a huge part of this project which should be done in this way. And partly it's because only governments have the money to sort of back this kind of enormous and you know, in some cases quite speculative research, because we've got multiple ideas for each of the hallmarks of ageing. But, you know, some of them just aren't going to come off. I, I very much hope analytics work, but the fact that they've worked in mice is no guarantee that they're going to work in people. And so obviously the things that are a bit further off, you know, that we haven't already got a working proof of concept in, in mice, they're going to require further investment, further speculative, speculative investment. And what's great about government is it can take big speculative bets because the fact is, there, say, say there are 10 hallmarks of ageing and there are 10 treatments for each, the government can bet on all 100 of those. And it might be that only five of them succeed, but those five are going to have such a massive return on investment, you know, as taxpayers, as corporations we're all going to see a huge huge return on that whereas you know if you're a private equity investor there's no way that you're going to take on that enormous portfolio knowing that 95 percent of them are going to fail even if those five percent could more than pay for it because you just how on earth are you going to justify that to your investors so i think that's really really important I think another that you sort of raised the human genome project, and I think that's actually a really important analogy as well. Toward the end of the book, I talk about um, the real importance that we've got of, of, of documenting some of the changes that happen with aging. So we've got these 10 hallmarks. It's probably not an exhaustive list because we don't fully understand the biology. It's definitely enough to be getting on with. You know, there's lots of research that could be done. But what's really surprising is, is how, how non-quantified this work is. So, for example, there's this sudden buzz around senescent cells and senolytics now because of these fantastic early results. But we still don't really know which organs for example in your body accumulate the most senescent cells what percentage of the cells in your liver at age 75 are senescent i don't think anyone really knows the answer to that and it's kind of surprising because that's going to to some extent inform therapy as I, as I sort of suggest in the talk, the first therapies are going to be for specific places where we know that senescent cells drive a particular disease rather than just, you know, clearing out senescent cells in aged bodies. But it might be that, you know, senescent cells in your liver are particularly numerous or for some reason a particularly strong driver of the chronic inflammation I talked about. I'm making all this up, by the way. There's no, there's no real evidence to suggest any of this. But the fact is that we don't know the answer to these questions. We don't know where the senescent cells are. We don't know how many of them there are. And knowing that answer is going to be a huge prerequisite to making sure the treatments can work. So I think there's a, there's a huge sort of treasure trove of 
data that, again, only government is really in a position to unleash. And then, of course, there's going to come a point where pharmaceutical companies and private in- industry and in- investors have to get involved because rolling this stuff out is something the private sector does really, really well. But I think it's really important that we both invest heavily publicly and think ahead to make sure that we you know, ensure equality of access and ensure these drugs aren't you know, sold at ridiculously high prices by pharma companies and so on. There's a huge amount to talk about and debate here. And I think we just really need to get stuck in as fast as possible. So maybe a publicly funded project on a large global scale that was investable in certain ways by the private sector. I think so. And I think that actually, you know, the, the way things work at the moment isn't perfect in any sense. But the fact that, you know, universities can get to a point, for example, where they, you know, they, they developed a project to a sufficient stage where it's got enough, you know, enough preclinical data that a pharmaceutical company might be interested in taking it on. I think there's nothing like intrinsically wrong with that model, wrinkles and flaws that there are in it. Because, you know, it means that the public sector can, you know, bear a lot of the risk in the early stage research. And then hopefully, you know, we can you know, we can we can spin these things out at the point when they are commercializable, when it's you know, when it's clear or hopefully clear that there's some, something to be had there. So I'd like you to clarify a point for me. When you were talking about the hallmarks of aging, I made a note here, which said it struck me that that you you are largely talking about individuals, it seems to me. So it seems to me that that an individual ages and dies because an individual is mortal, but that uh, a species uh, in a way is eternal. I mean, uh, unless there's some catastrophic environmental situation that so... Can you say something about how you know evolution has has created a, a situation where once an individual has reproduced and raised the next generation, or perhaps you know the grandchildren, they are less useful than say a, another younger person who can reproduce. If you think of it at the level of community or tribe or or species, uh, isn't aging just a natural process that we should accept? Yeah, I think the way you've posed that, I'd actually end up going the other way. So, you know, you're talking about the idea of the species and society and these, all these sort of ideas that are bigger than the individual. I think a lot of modern evolutionary biology thinks about things not on this grand, you know, social or, you know, even global scale, but on the level of individual genes. And that's because the genes are the things that are eternal or the things that have the potential to be eternal because they can be passed down from generation to generation. And a gene that in combination with the other genes in your body makes you more likely to survive and more likely to reproduce is one that's going to carry on in the gene pool. And I think um, the best way I've come up with to think about the evolution of aging is we talk about evolution as survival of the fittest. The best way to really think about evolution is reproduction of the fittest. It's those that are able to reproduce the best will, by definition, pass on their genes more readily to the next generation. And those uh, next generation will then be better able to reproduce because they've got those favorable genes and they'll carry on expanding into the population. And evolution will trade off literally anything to improve your reproductive chances it doesn't care it doesn't care if you've got you know long legs or short legs big muscles or small muscles you know gray gray fur or brown fur it will do whatever it takes to increase your possibility as an organism of reproductive success by you know effectively by meddling with your genes if we think about evolution in a slightly anthropomorphic way here and lifespan is just no different so there are contexts. If you imagine you're a mouse, you're a very small organism, you've got a lot of natural threats. You can get eaten by a cat, you can get a disease. Mice are so small that they often die just of exposure because they get so cold in the winter that they just freeze to death, basically. And so they've got a very short natural lifespan, even if they didn't age at all. And so evolution can either invest a load of energy in making them you know, cancer-proof, bulletproof, ageless organisms, or it can put a lot of energy into making them reproduce really, really quickly, you know, fire out those kids, and then effectively they're going to die of something else before they have a chance to get old. Whereas if you look in a different context, there are some animals like giant tortoises or like human beings, actually, you know, a giant tortoise has a big protective shell. It means it hasn't got serious natural threats on the islands on which they've evolved. 
if you look at humans, one of the reasons that we're so long lived is actually because we're social, because we can club together, we can share resources, we can share knowledge. It means that we're at much less risk of things like uh, predators than, than we would be if we were you know, less, less intelligent animals. And so evolution there decides to trade off and say, actually, you can reproduce a bit more slowly. You can live a little bit longer. And even in some cases, like as I said, in the tortoises or in, in the hydra, evolution has gone, well, actually, the optimal way to maximize your reproductive capacity is to give you a risk of death that doesn't change with time. There's a fantastic paper. I'm afraid I've completely forgotten the reference for it, but it's uh, it shows all the different life courses, so all the different graphs of risk of death with time, basically, uh, across a whole range of different creatures. And they are all over the place. Some of them have a lump and then, then go down and then and come up again. Some of them are you know, flat. Some of them shoot up like human beings do. Some of them actually go down with time. There are organisms that have negative senescence. Evolution is stranger than we can possibly imagine. It, and it will trade off literally anything, including how long we live, to make us reproduce more frequently. So I have one question from the audience, and then I'm going to ask you for uh, final remarks, okay? So this was a little outside your talk, but it is related. So the question is, what's your view on, on exercise, vegan diet, meditation, and positive thinking together working as well as uh, senolytics? I mean, we know we all believe that doing the, the quote-unquote right thing in terms of eating and exercise is good. But is there science behind that too? There definitely is. And actually, I think one of the most compelling studies that I found, there's a chapter of health advice in the book. And um, the, the, the reason there's that chapter, actually, is, is a variety of different things. Firstly, because I think understanding the underlying aging biology makes me a lot more excited about what you know, sounds like quite unquote basic health advice. Because you find that things like exercising enough, things like eating the right food, things like not smoking. Please do not smoke. That's the single most important thing I can convey to anyone you know, listening to this. Um, they literally slow down the aging process and understanding that biology, you know, makes them a lot more compelling, even though they, they might not necessarily sound that fascinating. I think, um, yeah, it's absolutely right to highlight these things are important. Because another really compelling study that I found showed that um, by, by doing, I think there are five different healthy lifestyle behaviors and it must have been not smoking, eating well, not being overweight, getting enough exercise. And I can't remember what the fifth one was now, but something like that. They, they did this study in nurses and they, they might've been sleeping well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That could, that could have been it. They found these people lived five or 10 years longer if they ticked four of those five boxes compared to if they ticked none of the five boxes. So there's clearly a lot to play for. And actually, I think you're, the, the question is exactly right. It probably will be comparable in effect to the first generation of senolytics. I'm sure we can do better than that once we start to you know, optimize these therapies. But I'd be really shocked if you know, the first generation of senolytics knocks exercise out of the park. There's this joke that doctors have that if exercise were a drug, everyone would be queuing up to take it because its effects are just so wide ranging and positive. But the second reason I really, um, really wanted to include that health span, the health advice chapter, sorry, is because I'm really excited about this because the longer that we can all live in good health, the longer we give scientists to develop these treatments, the more chance you are, you have to be alive when the first generation of senolytics or the first gene therapy or the first stem cell therapy that can sort out aging is you know, brought onto production. And that just means that, you know, your potential lifespan could be vastly, vastly longer than you're guessing now, because if you can be healthy enough to take those treatments at the time when they rolled out, then, you know, that could add you know more years to your life, giving scientists more time to develop more treatments and so on. So I just think, you know, the health advice stuff, some of it can sound quite boring. There are some other bits that are a bit less conventional I talk about in the book, but, you know, it's so, so important just because it does have a big effect. And that effect could be an even bigger effect amplified by all the progress in aging biology. Well, thank you, Andrew. We're at the end of our program. So one of our uh, I saw cardinal features of the Commonwealth Club programs is we like to leave our audience with either something to do or something to think about. So here's a chance for you to give us kind of a final remark that you want us to leave this program thinking about. 
I think the thing that I always tell people, and I, I've, or, I mean, I've already said this to some extent, but the, the weirdest bit of health advice I give out is to write to your representatives, write to your senators, write to the president, tell them about the importance of aging biology. And that sounds weird, but I think the single biggest determinant of how long most people alive today are going to live is progress in aging biology. And so the more that we can do to spread the word, um, you know, the more, that, you know, please read my book, obviously, <laughs> it sounds a bit self-serving, but that isn't intended to be uh, intended to be that way. The more people who understand how important and significant this could be, the greater our chances of living longer and healthier lives and the greater the chance of everyone you know and love and care about living longer and healthier lives too. So I just think that's so, so important. And if you can find the time to do that, that'll be fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Andrew Steele. I have to say, when I came across your book, which I've read and thoroughly enjoyed, I thought I must meet this man. So I'm so grateful that you were able to travel uh, across the ether (laughs) from uh, the UK to talk to us here today. I'd like to thank our audience for uh, listening to this program. And in about 10 days or so, this will be available uh, on the Commonwealth Club website. And so you can see it again and you can share it with your friends, uh, www.commonwealthclub.org. I encourage everybody who's watching this program to become a member. Contributing member for a mere $5 a month allows you to support this, this type of programming. So um, what else do I have to say? For 118 years, the Commonwealth Club of California has facilitated open dialogue, and we look at all issues across the spectrum of society to produce a healthier society and hopefully to live longer and a higher quality life. And of course, Dr. Andrew Steele, you've given us insights into how to do that. So thank you again for your time. Buy the book, read the book, and live longer. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.